Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Allison Hagee, author of several books. The latest is a novel, Boleto. It's the story of men and horses, the American West, and the dream of a ticket out. The hero, Will Testerman, is a young Wyoming horse trainer determined to make something of himself. Money is tied at the family ranch, where he's living again after a disastrous end to his job on a Texas show horse circuit. He sees his chance with a beautiful quarter horse, a filly that might earn him a reputation. And he spends his savings to buy her, devotes himself to her training. And this happens in the familiar barns and corrals of home, then on a guest ranch, in the rugged mountains, and in the final trial in the glittering, treacherous polo fields of Southern California. With Boleto, Allison Hagee has written a novel about our intimate relationships with animals and money, set against the backdrop of a new West that's changing forever. Allison Hagee is professor of English at University of Wyoming. She has uh, set her stories in uh, several places, Virginia, Outer Banks of North Carolina, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, now in Wyoming. Allison Hagee, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate you being with us. Um, I've been reading some uh, interviews uh, with you, and one on this very cold day stood out to, to me. I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's cold in Wyoming. It's sure cold here. <laughs> it's about negative 10 here, right? Yeah, now. it's about the same here. Um, and uh, somebody asked you how uh, living in the landscape of the West has changed your writing. And uh, you said that you uh, think it thought it brought more clarity to your senses. And then you quoted your husband. I wonder if you'd uh, you remember that. Quote that for us. <laughs> I think that he said something like, well, uh, when you live out here in the high, dry West for a long time, it's sort of... Uh, sucks all the extra uh, juice out of you um, and sort of uh, winnows you down to your essences, or at least that's how he feels, and I have to agree. Is he from Is he from Wyoming? Did he move there from somewhere else? He's a Michigan man. Okay. Um, yes, and he loves it out here, but I think he, one of the things he likes about it uh, is his dreams. Yeah, and you, you do write about, there's kind of a, a strain through your, through your books, you write about people. Um, who are living at the extremes. I do, and I, I, th- I think that that goes back to my roots in the mountains of uh, Appalachia in Virginia, Tom, to, to be honest. It's one of those things, you know, you, you aren't aware of things when you're growing up, and you shouldn't be. Uh, but the world I was in was, was pretty marginal uh, economically, uh, in terms of agriculture or any kind of good jobs. It was physically beautiful place, and still is. Uh, but people were scratching and clawing and had been really uh, forever, um, and it turns out that that just has remained really, really interesting to me. It's a, it's a very American thing to try to go, you know, onto the frontier or the edge of some place and try to uh, make something new of it. Um, and I, it turns out I was growing up in the middle of that uh, in the mountains of Virginia, and it just continues to fascinate me why and how we do that and how we, how we handle failure when it comes. And, of course, not everyone lives at these extremes, not even the majority, but, but that is, as you say, a very American thing. No, I think, it, I think it's true, and I think our, our, you know, the demographic shift continues to be towards cities and the suburbs, but uh, as, I mean, the kind of American animal, the idea of leaving, you know, home, and this is, of course, for, for the white European uh, immigrants who came over uh, to, to, to go somewhere and start over, uh, even if it's not a particularly easy place to live, because there are things to be gained from that. I guess freedom and autonomy is, is part of the myth there. That that just seemed to to drive uh, the first couple of centuries of our country, and I think it's I think it's still in family memory of of people who live in cities and suburbs now, or at least that's been my experience. You're right that the uh, people who live on the American margins, that could be geographically, economically, culturally, mm-hmm. uh, intrigue you. And you go on to say, because perhaps because they're always in conflict with whatever, weather, economic success. Yeah, and I, you know, I guess any storyteller would tell you, uh, we got to have conflict, we're drawn toward it, and we're really interested, uh, every fiction writer is, in the choices people make. And I think that people who are out on the margins, whether they put themselves there or whether they've grown up there, um, are constantly facing pretty significant choices, you know, every day, every week, every year. Uh, for me, I didn't know it, but growing up around sort of, you know, basically hill farmers, people who were who were just doing sustainable farming, you know, a few dairy cattle, a few pigs, a few chickens, back in the 60s and 70s, um, were constantly just trying to find the balance to make enough money to feed themselves and pay off whatever 
bills they had. And then when I got older and traveled more, I, when I got to the coast, I saw fishermen and their families doing the same thing. When I moved to Michigan, you could see versions of that in uh, factory families, uh, but also out on the margins with, you know, uh, lumber mills and things like that. And then when you come to the American West, it's just writ large, um, because this is a hard place to live. I live in a city now that was never inhabited by humans 12 months of the year until the Union Pacific Railroad came through. The natives were, were very wise in in the patterns of habitation they established and they they slipped off these mountains and plains for three or four months of the year because it was it was too cold and too hard to live on Uh, some people seek these places out Uh, they do (laughs) they do and you're in utah and i'm in wyoming and i think that that that, uh that's a really interesting dynamic you see less of that maybe in appalachia where i grew up but um yes and people are constantly coming here to to wyoming and wanting to be, quote-unquote, away from it all. Um, and I think that's interesting to me. Uh, it's neither right or wrong, but it's interesting. What's even more interesting to me is what happens to those folks when they show up. Is it as they dreamed it would be, or is it harder in ways they didn't anticipate, or is it maybe even fulfilling in ways they didn't anticipate? And to me, I'm just endlessly fascinated uh, watching how people try to make it out in the Rocky Mountains. Your, uh, your book and your character, Will Testament, it has been called an unsentimental portrait of the modern-day uh, cowboy. Did you set out purposely to skewer the, the, the myth, or, or is it just observing people? I, I did a little bit. I mean, really what I tried to do, Tom, was write about the kind of young people I think I see out here now in the 21st, early 21st century. So I, I, I wasn't intentionally skewering, but I was trying to hew close enough to the experience that I thought I was seeing um, that it might bring a little bit of a tone uh, shift to some readers. I mean, Will is, is honorable and hardworking um, and focused and decent in the way I think we would all hope that we would be and our children would be, but he still has a really hard time making it, even though he has a great skill set, because his skills are not 21st century skills. They're, uh, he's good with large animals. He's patient with people. He's probably not a city kid. He has a real gift with horses, but it's very hard to build a living with a gift like that when you're young. You have to build a clientele, and you usually need to have patrons, and that's very true in the horse business. And with patrons come the kinds of trade-offs that I think are really, really uncomfortable for independent young people. So... I think, you know, the cowboy on our movies is forever fascinating and will forever sort of have a place in our American heart. But I think we owe it to ourselves to take a a new look at what it means to have a skill set that is not as uh, universally appreciated as it probably once was. you know, it's it's a boutique business, the horse business is, I think. Yeah, and that's something I, I don't think we focus on much because the myth is so powerful, and we we tend to think of the West as, you know, filled with cowboys and, you know, ranchers and farmers. that The, the numbers are shrinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, to me, Utah, which is an amazing state, is a great example of that because you have a big, wonderful, you know, metropolitan area in the middle of your state. We don't quite have that, but... You know, the engines that drive success here in Wyoming are oil and gas, um, tourism, uh, and people coming to retire. And none of those are particularly smooth. None of those offer great opportunity to someone like Will Tusterman, who happens to have, who happens to be really good with large animals. You know, a hundred years ago, he would have been at the center of his community because everybody had to handle and treat their large animals. Uh, that's not the case for him now. So what's he going to do? And we'll talk a bit about that, of course. Uh, in fact, in his family, it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of families in the West. There, you know, maybe part of the family is involved in in agriculture, large animals. Will's father, I think, is in the printing business to support the farm, and that that's the way a lot of a lot of farms are. You have to do something else to support the farm. That was the way it was when I was growing up eons ago in Virginia, and it's still true out here. And, and it, it strikes me 
when you meet ranch families, almost always someone in the family has uh, a public sector job that provides insurance, um, even if it's what I'd call a sort of great job, you know, great in all the other valuable ways, like teaching in the public schools, which is what Will's mother does. And you see these, you know, two and three part-time jobs just to get enough cash to uh, keep the operation going, just cover the variables, because um, there's just there's just not enough income from even a quote-unquote successful ranch to really support a, a family in any way. And you mentioned the you know, the factors that are economic factors that are driving the engine in uh, Wyoming, which would be similar all across the West. And some of those are in conflict, aren't they? Oil versus tourism, <laughs> yeah. you know, that sort of yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things, I, 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 there's not as much of that in Boleto, but I have got my eyes fixed pretty closely on the um, shifting partnerships among uh, ranchers, uh, energy developers, uh, conservation interests, uh, and the, the federal and state government. Um, because... You know, Wyoming is prized for its great hunting, fishing, clean air, beautiful mountains. Um, can you sustain that uh, while you're drilling and fracking? Um, can you keep those small towns? Uh, will they hang together if the if the tax base dwindles, or there are a lot of second homeowners who have a very different way of thinking about community than the people who live there all? all year round do. It's really interesting, but the pieces don't fit together very smoothly at all. And I'm thinking of, I don't know of this happening in uh, anywhere in Wyoming, but I'm thinking of North Dakota. In some respects, we're back to the Wild West. Yes, yes. And we have we have versions of that here. Yeah, if you're talking about the, the Bakken uh, boom, some of that spilled over to our northeast corner of Wyoming. Yeah, uh, crime, uh, drugs, prostitution, uh, different kinds of violence, and, and we've had versions of that here uh, in and around Rock Springs in the 70s and 80s. Uh, huge boom uh, in the west central part of the state 10 years ago in Pinedale. Um, and when you look at the police reports from places like Casper or even Cheyenne, you see you see a kind of of pattern that <laughs> it probably goes all the way back to when the railroad came through. Lots of itinerant uh, single men with money in their pockets or hope to have money in their pockets and the, the kind of dynamic uh, social upheaval that follows that. We're talking with Allison Hagee. She's a professor of English at uh, University of Wyoming, author of several books. The latest is a novel. It's called Boleto. And it's the story of Will Testerman, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He's determined to make something of himself. He has ambitions, and he sees his chance with a uh, beautiful quarter horse, a filly might earn him a reputation and he spends his savings to buy her devotes his time to her training and uh, the novel is set in the rugged Wyoming mountains uh, the familiar barns and crowds of his home and the, the final uh, areas uh, near Anaheim uh, polo fields of Southern California we'll get to talking about all of that and how this represents uh, the West people living at the extremes that we've been talking about and I'll uh, want to get to uh, Allison Hagee talking about uh, more about her uh, growing up years in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and her father, the country doctor, she accompanied him on uh, on house calls. There's another tradition that's gone out of out of style, Allison Hagee. It sure has, and, I, and and who knew at the time when I was riding in the back of that uh, Ford Galaxy that uh, that I was seeing the end of a kind of era. Uh, it was an odd education for all of us, I think, and I'm sure my father wasn't at all aware of, of that. He just wanted to have some time with us, but he was literally on call 24-7 for the first 15 years of my life. Um, and it was a great way and a harrowing way to see how other people lived, um, to understand the roles of patience and compassion in the world, um, and to also just kind of see uh, a landscape in a really intricate way. You know, every back road, sometimes in, in, at night, sometimes in the daytime. Um, and the way that my my father was welcomed into all kinds of homes, even of people who really would rather not be bothered, you know, who lived in isolation uh, by choice. Mm. We'll talk more about that after a brief break. Uh, more with Allison Hagee. 
The novel is Bolato. Following the break. Did you know that giving back never goes out of style? Despite all the new toys in stores and fancy holiday apps online, volunteer work remains one of the best ways to spend the season. Try service learning projects with your family this year and make some memories that you'll never want to return. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. L-O-L. What happens? Let's do... When technology starts to change our language. Lol, let's do this interview via text. Lol. It would take us like forever to do this by text. <laughs> oh, lol. I'm Guy Raz. Spoken and unspoken. Stories from the frontiers of human communication. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Coming up next at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Allison Hagee, uh, who is author of uh, several books, uh, including three novels, Keenland, Snow, Ashes, and now Boleto, which is now out in paperback. Uh, she is a professor of English at the University of Wyoming. She was raised on a farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, author of uh, collections of short fiction as well. And we're talking about Boleto and some of her history on the program today. Boleto, by the way, is the story of a young uh, cowboy, Will Testerman, young Wyoming horse trainer. He has ambitions, and he sees his ticket. By the way, Boleto is uh, Spanish for ticket, so that there's a connection, uh, with a beautiful quarter horse, a uh, filly that might earn him a reputation. And uh, that's what he names the quarter horse. We'll get into more of the uh, plot of the book. And you can join this conversation, if you would like, at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, Allison Hagee's growing up years in rural Virginia, where her uh, father was a country doctor and made house calls. He would uh, take young Allison with him. Um, and uh, I wonder if you tell us a little bit more about this. You, you're quoted as saying that you saw people, families, on the edge of grief in, in many instances, as I guess you would with, with uh, traveling with a doctor. You know, I, yes, I did. Um, so, you know, really going, my dad would go often to attend uh, deathbeds. You know, a lot of people back in those days uh, never went to hospitals and never wanted to. That that felt very wrong to them. So he would be called in um, to try to provide care, and sometimes it was palliative care. And so often here we would roll up, and and it, it would really be, you know, grandmas or, or the great uncle or the ailing parents' last hours. And, of course, we waited outside because that's what we should have done. But... But you could just see and smell the kind of loss um, that people were suffering just by being near those homes. Um, I think the thing that struck me the most about it, Tom, was the, was the dignity. Um, there wasn't really fear, and these were people who usually were, um, had faith, their own brand of faith. That said, um, when someone passed away, because these are usually large families, but there was a lot of balance and what everybody did it was it was very hard it's always hard hmm. you say that you're you're intrigued by survivors and you go on to say by people who work on the land or water where their livelihoods are affected by natural forces far beyond their control and that, that would apply to i guess many of the things you've you've written about outer banks of uh, north carolina upper peninsula of michigan now out in wyoming yes yeah and i think so weather and geography and and one of the things that um that I spend some time thinking about is no matter how modern or postmodern we might be coming as a, a culture in America, there's some things that we really can't change. We can't change the vagaries of uh, geography, uh, and we really don't have any control over the weather. And, and curiously enough, that's become a kind of dominant hot topic right now. I mean, something like the Superstorm Sandy reminds us of just how small we are despite all our so-called advances. And if you're a, if you're a fisherman uh, on the coast of North Carolina or you're someone who's tried to run cattle on the northern American plains, 
that's always been an issue. You've always known that you were rolling the dice, but you weren't the one in charge. You couldn't, there's certain things you couldn't make happen. And I think that that's, that's pretty humbling, and it's very humbling to Americans because we sure do like to think that we can fix everything. Mm, yeah, that's true, isn't it? I was reading an article the other day, it, it, thinking about this issue writ large. Um, with climate change, we're hearing more and more about uh, Pacific Island nations. Mm-hmm. I was reading about the island of Kiribati, which potentially is facing the end of its, you know, it's, it, it could be underwater in 30, 60 years. And uh, there's, there's a sen- there must be a sense of helplessness there. As you say, that runs in conflict with what we usually think in America. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's true. And I am so struck by uh, the optimism of people who have moved to Wyoming since I've been here. You know, meet them sometimes, and they set up a little small ran- ranchette, or they, uh, they come to try to get away from it all in some other ways. And it's, it's a really powerful and admirable feeling, but there's also a sinking sense in my stomach, and I think, boy, are they really ready? Am I really ready, you know, for these, for the harshness uh, of the winters, but also the the unexpected nature of even our so-called good seasons? I mean, what, I've been out here 17 years, and I think nine of those years have uh, been considered drought years. Mm. You know, so what's normal, what's sustainable, what's right is always in play out here. Um, and I have to say, I grew up in a part of Virginia, even with the economic deprivation, we always had plenty of grass, plenty of water. You could grow enough food to sustain your family always. And that is not true out here, um, not in the same way. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting to see people who make that choice. What do you think they're looking for? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. Sometimes I think it's just a sense of the natural world. I mean, to be honest, I, the skies are beautiful. The land is intriguing. There are lot, you know, the uh, wildlife is is alive and moving through the world out here in ways that I think is really compelling. I think sometimes folks just want to get away from the hustle and bustle and the noise of metropolitan areas. Um, and I get that too. I, I put myself in that uh, in that category, um, but I'm not sure that we're always prepared to give up uh, a lot of the the comforts or the expectations that we've we bring with us from other places. Um, and I wonder if that dynamic is, was kind of the same for our forebears out here. I mean, if you were the younger son of a Swedish or Norwegian family and you you showed up out here on the high plains. Did, did you also bring some of those same expectations that, that would be dashed by the reality? Uh, and then did you just reform those expectations so you could last? Mm. I think that's probably true, but, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, uh, I wonder, you've written and in, in set your books and novels in, in several different places, I know there's a question you get a lot. I'm going to pose it to you. I, I think I know the answer, but um, you're, you're described as a Western writer now. <laughs> I am now. Um, and before that, I was considered a Southern writer. Uh, my take on this, uh, and I borrow this from my former teacher, the uh, fiction writer Richard Ford, who is a real titan uh, of the novel. Uh, I think of myself as an American writer. I have the deepest respect for the differences among regions, and I do think they still exist. Um, but I feel like, for me at least, um, though I am completely drawn to landscape and completely drawn to the, the accents and the food and the traditions of American regions, that what's really interesting to me is how all those things are, many of those things are ultimately American. What what are some of those differences? Could you delineate a few uh, coming from uh, Virginia from to the Wyoming? South and the West, yeah, which yeah. are the things I know the best mm-hmm. in the Midwest too. I lived there for a long time. Um, the South I grew up in, and this will date me, but I suppose it's important, was still very much tinged by um, the heritage of the Civil War and slavery, even though it was a hundred years later that 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 dynamic still seemed very much alive to me in the way we talked about history, what we celebrated. But we, but the South I grew up in also felt like it was um, 
the underdog, the unwanted uh, little child in America that we were um, had done great wrong in the past, and we're still paying the price for it, and we're not taken seriously. And that's changed. I mean, the economic boom of the 80s and 90s changed so much of the South that I grew up in, but, but that was still very true. They're also just the ethnic heritage of the areas are so different. You know, the Scotch-Irish tradition in which I grew up in, the white tradition, was very much an oral storytelling. Not very interested in formal education, lots of music, um, uh, and a real clannish attitude. And when I moved out to the West, I didn't find the same kind of clannishness. Um, And people out here were and are much more literate um, they have a very different way of thinking about uh, American history uh, because the, the great sin, if I may use that word, out here is the extermination of the Native American population, more or less, and the Western settlement patterns. And, and that, was, that was so far in the past of the South I grew up in that it, that it didn't even bear mention, really. Uh, People out here in the American West also, almost everyone has some story of remaking him or herself, which is, you know, the foundation myth of the American West, but it's still very true. Whereas in the South, the South I grew up in, people didn't move to the South to remake themselves or to recast themselves. They tried to get out of the South, away from their big extended families. So I think out here... um, you still have people coming and looking for a kind of, well, not kind of, a, looking for a very romanticized America uh, in a way that wouldn't have been true of the South. And the Midwest is so comfortable in all these good ways. It, it industrialized itself. It figured out how to uh, have its communities cohere. It did a lot of really smart things in terms of racial and ethnic relationships, also some not-so-smart things. But um, there's a kind of quiet, robust confidence to the Midwest that I think is still uh, very prevalent, and it's so prevalent that it's a region that doesn't think of itself as really having a regional identity. It thinks of itself as kind of America. Mm. We're talking with Alison Hagee, if you just joined us. Uh, she's a novelist most recently. Uh, her novel is Boleto, and uh, it is set in uh, Wyoming. Also, interestingly, in uh, near Anaheim, California. We're talking about that as well. Uh, and the hero is Will Testament, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He's determined to make something of himself. He has ambitions, and he sees his ticket out, if you will, in a horse he names uh, ticket in Spanish, Boleto, uh, beautiful uh, filly. And uh, he's he's the end goal is to uh, to take her, uh, I think to to sell for the polo grounds in uh, in Southern California. You're welcome to join the conversation at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can reach us by email to upraxis@gmail.com upraxis@gmail.com. Alison, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Will Testerman, very interesting character. You say a lot of people come to the West to remake themselves. He's He's born and raised in the West, but he's he has this ambition, hasn't been able, he's been knocking around, but he sees in this horse, this beautiful horse, Boleto, uh, essentially a, a way to achieve his ambitions. He does, and, you know, he really is trying to remake himself. You know, he he's not going to be able to stick on the family ranch. He has two brothers. Uh, he's made a couple of stabs at living away from home. He's driven vans for racehorses and performance horses in California, which is pretty far down on the food chain, and that didn't last too long. Came back and tried a little college, and then went down to Texas, which is where, I have to say, a lot of Wyoming horse people go to see if they can uh, make their fortunes. Um, and he ends up working for a family that's very much into the high-end saddlebred horses, Um, And he's pretty good at it, but he runs afoul of um, the owner's daughter. And (laughs) I'm I'm sorry to say that I saw that happen once, though not out here. Um, It was in Virginia, and so he loses his job. Um, And I think, you know, sort of back to Wyoming to try to figure out what's going to be next. Um, 
And again, he doesn't want to do just what everybody's going to do. He could kind of patch something together on the rodeo circuit and helping other people. But he's gotten this idea that he can take his skills if he finds just the right horse and he can sell her to uh, uh, somebody who's interested in polo and make more money than he's ever made before. And he wants to do it partly, Tom, because none of his buddies have ever tried to make it that way. So Will is... Will is willing to take a kind of risk that not every young person is. He's willing to fall on his face in order to do something different. Puts his life savings into this, right? He does. He does yeah. what little he has. Yeah. Um, and he's been looking for this filly for a while. And truth be told, that part of Will Testerman is, is based on a young wrangler I met who was from the Cody, Wyoming area, who uh, had spent probably up to four years looking for just the right quarter horse filly, just the right breeding and um, size and athleticism um, to see if he could also uh, train her and and make some real money. And I was intrigued at, at how and why a, a young person of his skill would take a risk like that and why he thought he could, um, you know, swim with the sharks of the, the big money polo people. But he did. Um, and I was sure there was a story in that kind of urge, so mm-hmm. I tried to write one. Not not all of us would, would take that risk. I don't think so. I think that often, you know, we're pretty cautious about our abilities, and we don't want to fail, and we definitely don't want to risk losing our life savings. Um, but in Will's case, he's just so sure um, that he can find the right horse and get her to the right people at the right time um, that he's pretty unwavering. The one wild card for him is his mother. As long as he thinks that her recovery from breast cancer is going well, he feels really good about being far away from home and out in the world. But he does, in the back of his mind, he's always worried about her. There's an intriguing question. It's at the center of the book. A couple of questions his mother asks him. Who are you today, Will Testerman? What will you be today? Yeah, you know, that just came to me. It's one of those things as a writer. um, I was very fortunate with this book. I was sitting in a lecture thinking about something else, and the first few pages of it just sort of came to me as a bolt of lightning, and that question was within that bolt. I didn't even know much about um, Will's mother. I knew she was a schoolteacher, but as I was scratching out those first few pages, those questions came to me, and, and they were... They were spoken by her, but I knew that there was something bigger behind them, Tom. And and that happens with me in writing. I just I have to write it down, and then I have to figure out why that came the way it did and what it means. Um, but to me, that's a real mantra for Will. It's a real test. You know, who are you? Are you being true to your nature? Are you doing things for the right reasons at the right time? And he has a value system. He sticks to it throughout the novel, although it really costs him. And there's a conflict, isn't there? He's He has his ambitions, financial ambitions. He's got the love of this horse, though. Well. Yes, yes. And I think this is one of the things, this is a space that I feel like we find ourselves in often when we're young, or at least I did. Um, he, he understands that success in that world uh, is about money, and he is really sure that he can make the trade in the way he wants, and it won't cost him emotionally, but he is underestimated um, both the kind of loyalty that he'll develop to the to the grooms and trainers he works with, but also the deep emotional attachment um, that he's built uh, with this filly. Hmm. We're talking with Allison Hagee. The book is Boleto. It's her uh, novel. It's set in Wyoming and uh, Texas and uh, also in uh, California. And we're going to take a brief break when we come back more with Allison Hagee, who's professor of English at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And we'll have Allison Hagee read a passage or two from her book. We'll get to talking about, hopefully, about the, the polo grounds in Southern California. This is a world that uh, I had been totally unaware of. Uh, more following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. Knowing the current air quality conditions allows you to better plan your day to protect your health. 
Keeping up to date on the local air quality is important for everyone, but it is most important for those that are most vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with heart or lung disease, and the elderly. The Utah Department of Environmental Quality publishes current air quality for most of the state at airquality.utah.gov. You can also sign up to receive email alerts when there is an air action alert in your county with wood-burning restrictions and recommendations for using alternative transportation. By checking the air quality regularly, you can plan for better health for you and for your family. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Allison Hagee, professor of English at University of Wyoming in Laramie. Uh, she has written several books, including Keenland and Snow Ashes. The latest novel is called Boleto, the story of Will Testerman, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He has ambitions. Money is tied on the family ranch, and he's had a disastrous end to his job in uh, the Texas show horse circuit. He sees his chance, his ticket, as it were, with a beautiful quarter horse, a filly that might earn him a reputation. And the plan is to uh, train her and uh, take her to the polo fields of Southern California. Uh, Boleto is the Spanish word for a ticket, and that's what he names the horse. It's the name of the novel, Boleto. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Alison Hagee, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about this craft. You see it as a craft, don't you? You describe this this industry, uh, horses, as it's become a boutique industry, kind of a niche. Um, of course, it's freighted with uh, all sorts of myth. Uh, but uh, I wonder if you t- tell us about this. Could could you describe, or is this just too facile? Um, Will Testament as a, as a horse whisper? No, I think that's true. The phrase wouldn't have been one that I grew up with, but. I do remember being struck uh, by how certain people um, around horses when I was a kid just seemed to have this very quiet, uh, powerful way. They were just so comfortable. They could move among the animals as if they were were part of the herd themselves. And now, in the wake of um, the Horse Whisperer movie, but also uh, Monty Robbins and some other trainers, we understand um, how that works a little bit more. Uh, directly, but no, he has he has a gift, and I think that there are among us people who do have gifts with animals, large and small, and those were people who would have been central to their communities way back, and you... they and they still and they still had this. So he he is uh, a craft person in a really. Uh, kind of timeless way. The question is, how do you, how do you find a place where you can uh, perform your craft? Um, if you live in a small town in Wyoming where maybe uh, it's it's not going to sustain you. Mm. Uh, I guess there's perhaps a dwindling number of places you could perform your craft. One that I hadn't thought of, uh, yeah, I, I don't connect polo with... I don't. I just don't collect polo with the, with at least the American West, the interior West. No, I think well, and there are a couple of outposts here, uh, uh, up in Sheridan and in Jackson, but particularly in Sheridan, they've been doing polo since the since the Scottish and uh, English lords came out here long before um, statehood, you know, in the 1880s and 90s. So oddly enough, there are little outposts here, um, but you most often see it in the warm weather. Uh, edges of America, uh, Miami, and Southern California, because the sport is super popular in uh, Mexico and South America among the moneyed classes. Um, That said, the animals themselves are tremendous athletes. They really have to be uh, remarkable, not fast, but quick, and they also need to have a kind of 
competitive nature that that the Arabs recognize in their own horses, they have to be able to, you know, kind of want to battle one another. Um, so it's pretty interesting, but it's definitely not a Northern American phenomenon. Mm. And so th- this is there's there's money there, right? Right. There's that's, that's real why money I've... among the yeah <laughs> among uh, the people who really care about horse flesh, and mm. a, a great deal of it uh, is uh, European or uh, South and Central American money. Um, you can. You, you, you got to find the right horse. They have to be the right size and with the right temperament. But they are still uh, worth a great deal, uh, and you can and you can bring them to fruition. Um, it takes longer to to get a polo pony started. So you have to figure out how to time that investment in a way that the payoff will work for you. And that's one of the things that Will is trying to figure out because you can in some of the other areas where there's big money, roping and reining. Um, the clients uh, have different demands, and you, you might be able to make your money staged in a different way, if that makes sense. Mm. But with polo, they have to be four or five years old before you really know whether they're going to do it. Um, and that's a long time to wait to make money. So Will goes out and tries to hurry things up, and that's one of the things that gets him in trouble a little mm. bit. I wonder if you'd uh, read us a passage from the, from the book. Sure. I was just going to read the start, if that's okay, Tom, yeah, yeah, although I have some other areas too, but this is just the way the novel begins. This really just came to me one day, um, as I said, while I was sitting in a lecture hall, which just lets you know that you can't plan novels. You just have to let them come as they wish, I think. So this is the start of Boleto. She was a gift, though he did not think of her that way for a long time. He paid $1,200 for her, money that came straight from his single account at Cabin Valley Bank. She was halter broke and trailer broke, and she'd been wormed for the spring. Someone had taken a rasp to her feet. He'd seen her damn Sally Quick Ticket win more than one prize in cutting horse competitions. He had no knowledge of her sire. The man who bred her kept good horses at his ranch outside of Cody on the south fork of the Shoshone River. The man did not use his horses much, but he had an experienced manager, someone who knew how to care for foals and weanlings. When the man chose to sell some of his animals, the manager, a careful fellow by the name of Campion, asked around. Campion did not go in for the commotion of stock sales. He had four horses he needed to sell, and the prettiest one was a quarter-horse filly that was barely two years old. She was nicely balanced. There was a decent chance she had inherited her mother's speed. Was it true what he'd heard, Campion asked on the telephone? Was he still in the market? He knew $1,200 was a bargain for a strong-legged filly with papers. He knew that before he even saw her. His name was William Testerman, and he was 23 years old. There were days he felt older and days he felt as lost as a blind pup. His parents had raised him in a way that allowed him to take account of the weaknesses he might find within himself. His older brothers, Everett and Chad, had managed to cover the bases on the family ranch. It was a small place, just 90 deeded acres set along one side of Little Kettle Creek. The town of Lost Cabin, Wyoming, had grown right up to the edge of the ranch, and the town was growing still. It was his father's joke to refer to his hay meadows and corrals as a Lost Cabin municipal golf course. Town is eating its way right past us, his father said. When I was a kid, you couldn't pay people to live in this part of the state. Too cold, too much isolation. Now everybody in America thinks they're in love with fresh air and loneliness. Very good. That's uh, Alison Hagee reading from her novel, Boleto. Yeah, that sets the scene very well. And I was thinking that the, the name of the town, you, you <laughs> might think that's a little too cute, but it, you, you travel through Wyoming or anywhere in the West, you've, you've, you've got towns, you know, named this. There is like a this. real lost cabin. <laughs> there, there's a real lost a cabin, bit. okay. Um. But there was an old mining site with an old, I think it's an old silver mine. And I just thought, uh, my goodness, that's too good a name to pass up. I'm just going to uh, make it a little bigger place. Uh, but you're right. I don't think people were being cute when they came up with all these interesting <laughs> yeah. Western names like, you know, uh, Dead End or was also a Lost Soldier or Spotted Horse. You know, there, there are reasons for most of these places. Well. Um and in my case, I think I wanted to evoke that sort of uh, kind of place where people would go to be left alone in their lives. Yeah. 
I'm thinking about Lone Pine, Burnt yes. Fork. These are real Wyoming towns. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about horses and horse people. You're, you're, you uh, dedicate, at least in part, to the, the novel to your dad, uh, who you say I loved do. his horses. I do. You know, one of the things that I didn't really think about, Tom, uh, and it's astonishing to me until I got into this project, was that uh, I knew my grandfather, of course, and he was a blacksmith. Um, by the time I was a little kid, he was no longer being a blacksmith, although all of his tools were around. But it, it should have occurred to me that, that I was the granddaughter of a blacksmith, and he'd been the son of a blacksmith, and he'd been a son of a blacksmith, so that the men on the side of my family, up until my dad, had been handling horses their entire lives. So there must have been something going on there. But handling them in a really sort of, um, you know, uh, I mean, they, they were they were you know pulling wagons and plows, so it was it was like fixing cars or tractors to work with horses in those days. And then as a kid, um, my dad got us a couple of ponies, and I just loved those animals. And I learned to ride, but then I kind of wanted to do the the pageantry part of it, and that was a real shock to me and to us. The as beautiful as it was and is, the, 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 you know, the saddles and the jackets and the show rings and the big trailers and all that stuff, it was like walking into a completely different um, society, one that was very much driven by money, uh, who had it and how much they had. Mm. So that it's money-driven, at least in the... In yeah, the and it was pretty yeah. clear to me, and, and I was sort of okay with this, but um, it was pretty clear to me as soon as we started taking our horses and ponies outside of the confines of the county I grew up in, that if you, were gonna, if you went to a show, the, the results were almost predetermined. It's sort of like dog shows, I guess. Um, because you could always buy a prettier pony or a pony that could jump better if you had the money... And if you could afford the training. And so for kids like us, there was only so far we could go um, because we weren't going to have the resources to go further. It was a very tiered society. Um, That said, the thing that held everybody together mostly was still their deep love of these animals. So there there were so many contradictions. And I see that all the time. And whether you... You know, you go to a rodeo or a saddlebred uh, kind of event or a show jumping event or the Olympics, or you just go to any kind of training facility, you find that the people who are truly drawn to the animals in a deeply passionate way, mingling and trying to figure out how to get along with the people who are in the business for uh, the money, power, political um, dynamics. And that that's never changed. It's probably been that way. <laughs> forever uh, with humans and horses, but uh, it makes for, uh, I think, great stories because there are so many contradictions. We just have about a minute left. I wonder what you're uh, up to next. <laughs> I'm working on something that's very different from Boleto. Thank you for asking. It's set back in uh, Virginia. Uh, the main character is a woman. Um, some of the questions are still the same, though. I'm, I guess I'm really trying to figure out how people who love pastoral life, who want to be out uh, doing the, the farming thing or the ranching thing, um, can find their way forward. Um, and maybe I'm just going to stay in that territory for a long time, Tom. But Well, it's a, it's a rich vein. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I just cannot... Uh, I haven't been able to answer my own questions very well yet, but I have to say, writing about Will was a great pleasure because he's the kind of character that a writer can just love to be with day in and day out, and that was a real, real joy for me. Allison Hagee talking about her latest novel. It's out in paperback now, Boleto, and uh, you can find it at uh, the usual places. We'll look for that uh, new book uh, to come out as well. Allison Hagee is professor of English at the uh, University of Wyoming in Laramie. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. A real pleasure for me, too. And for producers uh, Bennett Purser and uh, Katie Swain, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening to Access Utah today. 
Wendy Hassan was honored with the Utah Museums Association Public Service Award at their annual awards meeting in October. Hassan works with museums to collect information on museum trends, encourages continuous improvement through state performance goals, and helps individuals gain recognition for significant investments in professional development. Utah Public Radio would like to acknowledge Wendy Hassan for her vital assistance and support to Utah's museum communities. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. The Great Basin is aptly named. Twice the size of Kansas, it stretches from the watersheds of the Columbia and Snake Rivers south to that of the Colorado, and from the crests of the Sierra Nevada and Southern Cascades eastward to the Wasatch Front. The Western explorer John Fremont coined its name in 1845. The rivers and streams of the region that Fremont had seen all ended in sinks, marshes, or lakes. None flowed to the Pacific Ocean. He confirmed this on meeting Joseph Walker at Mountain Meadows in Utah. Walker had traveled more of the basin's western margins, dispelling rumors of a river traversing the Sierra Nevada. Precipitation that falls in the Great Basin stays in the Great Basin. Water leaves only as vapor. This is the hydrographic Great Basin. How else can we view the vast region between the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada? Geologists speak of the Basin and Range Province, so named for its valleys and the towering ranks of north-south mountain ranges that march across the landscapes of Nevada and edges of adjacent states. Unlike the upthrust Rockies and Sierra Nevada, Earth's crust in the Great Basin appears to be spreading, to be pulling apart. The tilted escarpments of the Wasatch Front are the easternmost evidence of this crustal deformation that has built the Basin and Range Province. Botanists delimit the Great Basin by the hardy flora that clothes this ragged landscape. Great Basin plants tolerate freezing winters and parched summers, and in the valleys, soils of varying salinity. The so-called sagebrush ocean fills many of the basins, as do other shrubs, such as shadscale and greasewood. Upslope, these give way to juniper woodlands often mixed with pinyon pine. This floristic Great Basin reaches eastward to central Utah and the Wasatch Front, beyond which trees and other plants of the Rockies make their appearance. The boundaries of all three concepts for the Great Basin, hydrographic, geologic, and floristic, largely coincide. Each recognizes the distinctive attributes of the Great Basin that set it apart from neighboring regions. The Great Basin is readily recognizable to the trained eye, whether looking at satellite images, river courses, or the native plant communities encountered on a simple walk. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Waste not. Help keep your drinking water safe. Eliminate or protect cross-connections between your water system and a contamination. And have your backflow preventers tested annually. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan. <laughs> 